The name for the message is How to Be Aligned for Victory. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. Uh, I didn't know about it, either of those dreams until a few seconds ago. Um, and most of you know the Lord's been talking to me about military strategy and history and warfare type things. Uh, everybody remembered me bringing up the big book so I could brag about how much I was reading? Yes? Okay. Um, and the Lord has been, been giving me a lot of downloads on this subject. And yesterday, I preached at a conference for three hours nonstop on it. So um, I hope the children's group is ready for you to be in here for quite a while. No? Not three hours? All, all of the parents just gave me the most terrified look. <laughs> Please no. <laughs> um, so part of this is, is I realized the Lord said to me the other day that your understanding of spiritual warfare is wrong. I said, okay. And the implication was most of the time when I hear spiritual warfare, I think deliverance, right? You hear spiritual warfare, you think God casting out demons. Um, and he said that is, that's like saying that in, in military warfare that somebody's saying I'm studying warfare, that they're studying hand-to-hand -hand combat. You with me? It's, it's like saying, okay, I know how to do this one little thing. But warfare is much more encompassing, and it involves how groups interact and how, how we win territory, how we advance the kingdom, and we do it together, not as individuals, not just one-on-one -on -one conflicts. And the verse that we're going to launch from is 2 Corinthians 2.14. Oh, there's like three of you with actual Bibles, not the app, that are flipping to it. I'm going to read it. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Okay, the first time you read that verse, like what's the big thing that stands out? It's the victory, right? He always leads us in victory. We're always aligned for victory. We're, he's always planning for us to be victorious. And we're a prophetic community, so we usually have an idea of where the Lord is taking us, right? You know, whether it be your group or your work or your home or whatever, we have some kind of idea of where we're going. And if not, you need to get the vision first, because without vision, we perish, right? We have to have a vision. We have to know where we're going. And a lot of times we, we tend to kind of stop there of, okay, I have this word, so this is going to happen. We treat every word as though they're, they're unconditional. There's two kinds of prophetic words. There's conditional and unconditional prophetic words. Everybody with me? Yes? yes? Okay. I had more deer in headlights. So conditional means I have something that I'm doing. Unconditional means that it's going to happen no matter what. An example, Nathan gives, gives David the word that the baby's going to die after he sleeps with Bathsheba. He fasts, he prays, he does all the things that he's going to do, and the baby still dies. The word came to pass regardless of what he did. Then there's the example in, in Acts where Paul gets the word from Agabus of you're going to get handed over from the... Was it the Romans to the Jews, and then the opposite happened? But he went, he went anyway. He had a response to the prophetic word. You with me? So we have, we tend to think of, okay, I have this word, so it's going to come to pass. Or, 
Or if we're, we're being real proactive, we're like, okay, I'm contending with my prophetic word. I'm, I'm going to take my prophetic word, and I'm just going to keep believing it more and more and more. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but there's actually ways that we can get to the victory faster, more than just holding on to what the Lord is saying. That we, we tend to focus on, on the word of knowledge, knowing what's coming, as opposed to the wisdom that gets us from where we are to where we're going. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We're always going to be victorious. He's always giving us positive words of outcome. But we forget this other part of the verse. Manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. And here's the point. God often has different objectives in our conflict and different objectives in what we're going through than what we do. We focus on getting the victory. We want to come out of whatever trial we're in, ASAP, get me out of it now, I'm done, this is terrible, right? When stuff is hard, you're like, okay, whatever it is I got to do, I want to do it, I want to get out of this. And, and the Lord has a different objective. He doesn't just want you to have the victory. He wants to make sure that he gets the glory for the victory. Like, think of Gideon, right? You know, God could have won with, with the whole army that Gideon had. That, you know, he had tons and, I don't remember, not tons, thousands and thousands of, of soldiers. And God says, no, 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 that's too many. He says, tell the ones that are afraid to go home. So he tells the ones that are afraid to go home. Then he says, no, 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 you still got too many. Go and, and do that weird thing where you drink with the water. And if the ones that are drinking this way as opposed to slurping it, you know, these are the ones that are really ready, Right? Everybody know this story? So now he's left with 300. And the Lord wins this battle in an incredible way. Like He, he says, okay, you're going to take your torch, you're going to put a bowl on the torch so they can't see it, and then you're going to have a trumpet in each hand. So these are 300 soldiers that don't have a sword in their hand that are approaching the enemy. You know, we think of, of battles... Um, like Alexander the Great, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, where they're outnumbered four to one and five to one as like these significant victories. But we have Gideon, who took 300 soldiers, went into an enemy's camp, and won without using swords. He does, God does things in ways that only he can get the glory. Now, there's also prophetic significance in the way that the Lord has us do things. And if we can catch the prophetic significance of whatever it is that's going on and whatever our group is or conflict or whatever, if we can catch the prophetic significance of what the Lord is trying to bring into, into the body of Christ, what he's trying to bring into the earth, we can partner with it faster. I believe that every victory points to Jesus. As I was studying, um, studying the judges, oh good, I spilled. I can tell it bothers Tracy more than me. I have kids, I'm used to having food and all kinds of stuff on me. Actually, food isn't the worst, I went fishing. Um, so Othniel is the first judge that's listed in the book of Judges. And it's, he has a real short mention. And I was asking the Lord, I was like, Lord, why is, why is this guy the first one? Like, why is he significant? And Othniel fights um, 
Kushan Rishathaim. Aren't you impressed by me memorizing that word? <laughs> yeah. I'll make you give me kudos. That's what's going to happen. Um, now, Kushan Rishathaim was the leader of Mesopotamia. I thought, well, there's not much information in here. There's not much like prophetic significance in, the, in what, what happens. Maybe there's something in the name. Now, I looked up Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan means darkness. Rishathaim means of iniquities. Othniel means the Lion of God. Now, there's a verse. That, where is this? Judges 3.10 says, Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand that he prevailed over Kushan Rishathaim. Okay, if you take the meaning of those names and you replace it with the actual names, this is how it reads. The Spirit of the Lord came upon the Lion of God, and the Lion of God judged the people who strive with God. When the Lion of God went out to war, the, lion, the Lord gave the blackness of iniquity into his hands. So the Lion of God prevailed over the blackness of iniquities. There's prophetic significance in just that one little mention. Another one, and I've, I've mentioned this one before, but I felt like I was supposed to repeat it, is, is Moses. And I, it, I always kind of felt like it was weird. Like we call Moses a prophet, but he really didn't prophesy that much until I realized that what Moses did, his actions had prophetic significance. Moses is leading the people of God. He's leading Israel out of the valley of sin. And he gets met by, the, by Amalek, by the Amalekites. And, and Moses says, okay, Joshua, in the morning, you're going to go out and you're going to fight him. I'm going to go up onto this hill. I'm going to take my, my staff. This worked real well for us before at the Red Sea. I'm going to take the staff. I'm going to hold it up, and, and we're going to win. He's thinking, okay, I'm going to do what I did before and get the same result, right? He goes out. He goes up to the hill. Joshua goes to fight. But instead of holding up that staff, he lays it down. And he holds up his hands. And when he holds up his hands, they're winning. And when, he, when he, his hands are down, they're losing. Everybody remember this story? And there's two men that are with him. There's Aaron and there's her. And they, they prop his arms up and they're helping him to keep his arms up because they see this victory happening. <clears throat> the significance, Joshua is the same name as Yeshua. It's the same name as Jesus. That the people of God come out of sin, and when they come out of sin, Yeshua is going to defeat the enemy, the serpent. Amalek is a type of serpent. It's one who licks. It's a type and shadow of, of the devil. He's going to defeat the devil. But he's going to defeat the devil different than before. The staff represents authority. And instead of using his authority, he's going to lay down his authority. He's going to go up on a hill. There's going to be a man at his right and a man at his left. He's going to stay in this position of yieldedness. That as he stays yielded, there's going to be victory and he's going to overcome the enemy. That Yeshua is going to win. And even the two men that came up there with him, you have, you have Aaron, the high priest, and you have her. The high priest speaks to who Jesus is. He's the high priest who's going up to this position to lay down his authority. Her... His name is, it's actually a reference to 
where a snake would live. It's a hole in the side of the ground, or it's an empty cave. Everything that the Lord led him to do was prophetically speaking of what Jesus was going to do. So we have to look for the prophetic significance in whatever it is that we're going through. So, like, like for example, I lead trips to Juarez, right? Everybody knows about Juarez? Okay. Juarez, uh, the name Juarez comes from the word Suarez, which is Spanish and means herd of pigs. And the Lord uses this to, to give me an understanding of the tactic and, and the strategy for how he wants to advance the kingdom in Juarez. And if you remember at the Gadarenes, and Je you know, you hear herd of pigs, what Jesus does, he, he casts all the demons out, they go into the pigs, and the pigs die, right? So it's a group of Jewish people that are raising pigs. Pigs not kosher. Everybody with me? Okay. So the basis for their financial system was actually on breaking the law or a form of sin. And they, what was interesting about that town is they refused to let Jesus in. They said, wait, 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 we don't want you here. But how did Jesus win that city? He had a different tactic. The man that gets delivered tries to come with him. He says, no, 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 you go home and tell everybody what I've done for you. That when he returns, there's an open door. So part of what we're doing in Juarez is actually raising people up, that those that are affected and impacted by the gospel through what we're doing, we want to raise them up and send them out to make a way for what the Lord wants to do. You know, I've been guilty of, of a couple of things in leading these trips, of doing it my way or trying to figure out, like, okay, I've seen a crusade happen this way, so I'm going to do it that way and repeat that same thing, and then the Lord doesn't want to do it that way. Like, for example, um, the last time that we did crusades, the, the first day I, I was calling out words of knowledge, and nobody was coming up. And it wasn't that the words were wrong. They told us the next day there were people in their homes that were getting healed from the words of knowledge. But nobody knows about it because they weren't coming up to tell us what was happening. I'm like, okay, Lord, you want me to do this differently. How do you want me to do it? The second day, he told me how he wanted me to do it. And just to be transparent, I didn't do it that way. It wasn't out of rebellion. It, I just, just didn't. It, it, the way that he wanted me to do it was honestly a little scary. He said, I want you to call out the words of knowledge, be as specific as you can, and then pray for him in front of everybody. <laughs> day three that's what we did and we had people raise their hands when they respond to the word of knowledge we bring them up why because there was things in that culture where they didn't want to be noticed they didn't want to come up so what would work for somebody else wasn't working for me so i needed a specific strategy a specific way of seeing victory from the lord for that specific instance And there's another side to it. So there's, there's one side where we're believers and we see how it's been successful for somebody else. How This is how Heidi Baker built her ministry and this is how Rick Joyner built his ministry or whatever else. This is how Tracy Eckert built her ministry. And we want to repeat those same things, right? And then there's the other side to it where we don't, we don't ask the Lord at all. Have you all ever heard of practical atheism? I got one nod. Okay. I had never heard of practical atheism. 
Here's what practical atheism is. It means I am practicing atheism. I did. It means that if, I, if there's me and another guy at work, this is a Bill Johnson example, if there's me and another guy at work, we both have a, a financial struggle, a financial situation that we're going through. And he decides, okay, I'm going to invest in these things and, and this is how I'm going to get myself out of my financial struggle. I hear what he's doing and I respond the same way that this atheist guy does. And, I'm, and I make this decision apart from a knowledge of God without even talking to the Lord. I am practicing atheism. I'm not including the Lord in the process of how do I overcome this difficulty. You with me? Getting a bunch of head nods, so that's, I'm assuming that's good. So we're not, just, we're not just following formulas, and we're not removing God from the equation. We're accepting his counsel and responding to the stuff that he says, even when it's weird, even when it's a prophetic act, even when it's go up on the hill and hold your hands up, and you don't know why you're holding your hands up, and why you're winning when the hands are up, and you're not, like, he, I doubt that Moses really understood what, what he's doing. I mean, if I was up there, I'd kind of be like, wait. Uh... Why is this working? You know, that's what I would do. We have to get his strategy to get to the point where the prophetic words come to pass. Now, there's more to it than just getting his strategy because there's an enemy. And we're not to be unaware of his devices, of his tactics, of how he works. Y'all with me? I am not going to go over every single way that the enemy works. Right, was that a thank you? <laughs> but I believe in warfare that we can actually study military history to, to gain some principles for how the enemy works to overcome us. Here's the first one. I hope these markers work. Huh? The other black? Okay. Who has heard of the Battle of Gagamela? Crickets. Okay. It's one of the most famous military battles in history. Alexander the Great, A, is fighting Darius II, D, the Persians. Now, historians, uh, they kind of argue back and forth on how many people um, Darius had. It kind of ranges between 100,000 and a million. So it's a big gap. So we're going to say, say 200,000 just to stay on the conservative side. We know that Alexander had about 44,000. So at best, he's kind of outnumbered 4 to 1, 5 to 1. You with me? This is why Alexander is famous. He was undefeated, and he usually won with less numbers. He was usually outnumbered in battle. Now, Darius had been losing to Alexander, so the two were familiar. Darius has... Uh, what are those things called? War elephants? You know, like uh, Lord of the Rings, the big elephant things? Oh. Okay, what he said. He had war elephants, he had iron chariots, and Alexander had uh, infantry, cavalry, and he had 
pelters, so people that threw rocks. <laughs> yep, that was a thing. Darius gets to the field of battle first. He clears the whole field. He makes room so that his army is, is able to stretch out and to move so that he, can, he has the full use of his army. Here's what I want you to think of as I'm kind of going through this. This is us. By the way, he lost. Spoiler. Superior strength. Superior firepower. Come on, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But Alexander won. Here's how. He clears the, the field. Alexander goes to a hill nearby and takes his time. He takes a couple of days. He's observing his enemy. He's sitting. He's watching. He's had interactions with Darius before. He knows how Darius reacts to certain things that he does. The enemy does the same thing with us. He knows that if I press this button in you, you're going to react this way. Right? Alexander lines him up. And he was known for this, this uh, specific move. It was, you know, we would call it flanking. He would take... His cavalry, oh. oh good, that one works. He takes his cavalry, and he would regularly come around behind the enemy while the attack is here. So he'd attack from the front and the back, okay? In the middle of the battle, Darius kind of takes his chariots and stuff, and they attack. Alexander pretends like he's going to do that again. He goes over here. And they start to ride that way. Darius sees what he's doing. He's lost to this before. And he starts to react. So he sends his army this way also. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So all of a sudden, the line starts to thin and starts to thin and starts to thin until... There's a division until there's a gap, until what was a strong front is now weakened. And Alexander, rather than coming around behind, comes right back through the middle, right in front of Darius. Darius runs, even though he still had superior numbers, even though he still had superior power. Darius runs after getting through that front line. They never recover. They lose the battle. What's the point? If the enemy can divide you, if the enemy can cause just a little gap, just a little division, he can get in and he can beat us even when we're stronger. So what's the response? Our answer is to stay together. The answer is, is that we give preference to one another. This is Philippians 2, that I have the same mind of Christ that's, that was in Jesus, that I give preference to you. I esteem your value as more important than my own. It's, it's the same reason that I'm going to put these marker caps on the wrong thing. It's the same reason that the phalanx, the, the Roman phalanx, everybody know what that was? Nope, okay. It was when they took their shields and they would overlap them with the guy next to them. So that the guy next to him wasn't taking the full force of whatever attack was coming against him. I'm helping him in the process, and the guy next to me is helping me. If they stayed together, they were significantly stronger. But by allowing the enemy to come in and cause that division, it tore the whole thing apart. Darius never recovered from that battle. Superior numbers and everything, never recovered. He lost his kingdom.
There's another way that the enemy comes against us. And I'm picking the ways that are a little, um, a little more deceptive. He tries to cause division, but he also tries to wear us out and not let us have rest. Thank God for Tracy a month ago because she looked at me. She's like, are you burned out? And I was like, um, no, but if you give me about a week, I'm going to be. Uh, it helps to have somebody prophetic that can say, hey, you need to rest because I wasn't doing it. Napoleon, in the Napoleonic Wars, he invades Russia. And the Russians, I think Napoleon had 420,000. The Russians had 120,000. They, they knew they could never win a direct confrontation, so they retreat. And as they retreat, they do what's called a scorched earth. They, they burn every resource so that there's nothing for Napoleon's uh, army. And Napoleon keeps chasing and keeps chasing and keeps chasing until his troops are absolutely worn out and they're dying. His numbers thin down to 140,000. He loses two-thirds of his army just because he's not resting them. They finally have this conflict, and even though they beat, they beat the Russians in this one battle, they weren't able to pursue them because the men were too tired. In Russia, they're able to rest, and they recuperate. They get their numbers back up to where they come back, and Napoleon has to retreat. Again, superior numbers, superior firepower, but a failure to rest is what actually beat Napoleon. And rest, I was asking the Lord about rest. I was like, is rest, does that just mean like I stop doing stuff? Or, or you know, what does it mean? And, and this is what he said. He said, rest is not an absence, it's a presence. It's not the absence of activity, it's a presence of stillness. See, we're commanded to enter into rest. You can't enter an absence, just by definition, right? Like if I get out of the pool, I'm not entering the absence of water. I'm leaving the presence of water. You can enter the presence of water. I can enter the presence. I can enter the Lord's presence of stillness and quietness. And it's in this place, this is Isaiah 40, 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. It's that place of being still in his presence and letting him restore our strength. Here's the takeaway. And there are a handful of other tactics that the enemy uses that are you know, beyond just the direct attack of, of sin and temptation that he tries to use against us corporately that he'll try to use against a prayer group, that he'll try to use against a life group, or whatever it is. He comes against groups in different ways than individuals. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. The output reveals matters more to the Lord than the outcome. I think Bill Johnson always says, you know, God can win with a pair of twos. He can win any way he wants. 
But as a Christian, we are expected to manifest the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. That in the midst of this difficulty, I ought to be responding the same way that Jesus would. And when, when you've come out the other side of a, a conflict or, you know, you've had this breakthrough, I think it's a good, a good practice, at least, to look back. Okay, how did I really do? How did I actually respond when I was going through that? And most of the time for me, it's like, oh, you know, that was not very good. I was not manifesting Jesus when I got really frustrated right then. That didn't smell like a sweet aroma to the Lord. And being honest with myself of, okay, if I want to manifest that aroma, if I want to look, sound, act, be like Jesus, I have to lay down myself. Because it always comes back to self, picking up a selfish identity, acting, acting a way that serves me best. I need to die and deny myself Pick up the cross. Pick up the identity of Jesus Christ. Resolve to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. And from that place, that's where I can act. And I guarantee you, if you go through a trial and you don't go through it that well, you're probably going to go through it again. Because we're called to be a bride without spot or wrinkle. And sometimes that iron goes over the dress and that wrinkle is still a little bit there. So you got to take the iron and go right back over it. <laughs> it gets hotter, more pressure. <laughs> but it's because he's forming something in us that we look like Jesus, whatever we're going through. All right. I'm going to pray. Jesus. You're amazing. We have victory. We have victory. We thank you that you're always leading us in victory. That we're going to overcome. And we pray for grace to be transformed into your image and into your likeness. That regardless of what we're going through, we would look, act, think, and love like you. I pray for the love. I pray for the love for everyone in this room that they would be able to love their enemies. A grace to love those that don't, don't deserve it, that don't seem like they're worthy of it, those that have said every terrible thing against them, a grace to love, because love is the only thing that never fails. That you've armed the body of Christ with the unstoppable force of love. And if we stay in that place, we'll never fail. And God, I ask for divine strategies for those that are in the midst of conflict, that are in the midst of some kind of trial, in the midst of learning how to overcome and to take dominion for the kingdom, I pray that you give them divine strategies, give them blueprints in the night, wisdom and revelation. Give them dreams, give them prophetic words. Lord, not just what you're taking them to, but how you're going to get them there and how they can give all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise back to you.
because you're worthy of it all. Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your strategy. In Jesus' name, amen.